2: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom, Books, Flowers, and the Moon—the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, and I am the editor of the TLS. And yes, I'm back alongside my cheese-loving friend Thea Lenaduzzi. Thea, this is the my, so it's probably your 150th podcast. It's a lot, isn't it? It is quite. That's
3: it's three quite a lot, isn't years it? of doing it yeah. every week. Yeah, give or take.
2: Give or take. That's yeah. a lot. Uh, yeah. It's been lovely. Anything? Any favourite bits? I was trying to think of this.
3: It's very difficult, isn't it? They blur into what? It's a warm. bit like asking what you had for dinner last night. Yeah. It's quite difficult to remember. Di- what did you have for dinner last night? I leftovers oh. of, of some of some shape or form. Oh no! I don't oh know no exactly. no! They were delicious. So they they what, tasted better for being leftovers. Like what? What are we talking about? It was what? a sort of um, a sort of pie of, with various vegetables. I can't be bothered to make that sound any more exciting than <laughs> the food than that. Bit.
4: <laughs> The thing I've liked most
2: about the last three years, there is in many ways talking food.
3: Well, do you know what? I can hardly receive an email from a contributor, or from anyone, in fact, these days, without them feeling the need to tell me where they stand on the great Hawaiian pizza debate.
2: <laughs> where, what, if you had to sort of do a percentage, where do you think the, the, it falls?
3: I'd say it's quite a good sort of 60, 70%, maybe. Oh, what, pro? Oh no! Of, of people who who bring it up.
2: No, but how many of them have oh, pretty, oh it It's 50 fifty-fifty.
3: It's, it's for sure. It's, it's a fifty-two, 50, 50. 50, forty-eight. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> something it's as un- of the, contentious as that. Yeah,
2: it's one of the great debates. Yeah. yeah, so I think maybe we should do more food. Have we done that many food segments?
3: Well, we've got our food and drink special issue coming we do. up. We uh, do next month well next month but one yeah, the Christmas uh, so there special. will be that and there, there's a lot of stuff coming up actually
2: and i can't really think of anything thing i've liked it i've even recently i really enjoyed talking about poshness with a.n wilson yeah that made me
3: laugh a lot exactly yeah. i like
2: talking to helen mcdonald with a with a parrot yes. in her car but yeah, i mean i could go yeah. back to really about, a...
3: about why we should all dig pigeons yeah yeah
2: and, uh, what are the... I think
3: any time we have Margaret Drabble on, that's always a pleasure. Whether good. it's on Anthony Burgess or Muriel Spark. That's
2: right. She did. It's very seldom that. It's quite a nice range, isn't it? Anyway, yeah. And if you if you just come to us uh, relatively fresh, thank you, welcome. Uh, if you do look back, it's a pretty it's a pretty random collection. It's an attic. A
3: final recommendation. A few weeks ago, we had Elaine Showalter on. And we talked about Susan Sontag. Yes. And it was really satisfyingly frank.
2: Yes, I about think. yeah, because we weren't just trying to sort of add to the monument, mm. which she appeared to have half-created herself, yeah. which was the thing that came out yeah, of it. it. Yeah, it was interesting. Yes, do have a dig through uh, the back catalogue. Uh, if you want to get a cheap subscription to the TLS, and why wouldn't you, you can. If you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the uk forward slash pod19.
3: How cheap is cheap?
2: It's... Five issues for five dollars or five pounds. That's pretty cheap. I should have said that. (laughs) This week, we consider the memoir of the doctor, David Knott. He's a surgeon who risks his life in perilous global situations helping the most threatened figures of humanity. Happily, we have a doctor who is an expert in conflict medicine himself, Zan van Tulliken, who can tell us about it. From the vital issues of the day to something more marginal, this is the week that the wretched Nobel Prize in Literature has been announced, as well as the Booker Prize. What is the point of these goddamn awards? Toby Lishtig, our fiction editor, and Michael the Doctor, Keynes, our resident prize expert and cynic, will offer their views. And arts editor and musical northerner Lucy Dallas has been interviewing David Gregg, the Scottish playwright who has a new production of Solaris opening. We'll hear what they said to each other. The Nobel Prize in literature is, when you think about it, not without its shabby side. There's no reason for its existence other than the deathbed attempt by an arms manufacturer to cleanse his reputation. Its selection methods are arbitrary and opaque. There's nothing to suggest its judges are especially attuned to literary greatness. And they come from an academy so mired in recent scandal that last year it didn't make an award at all. Many of the prize winners in the century or so of the prize's existence have returned almost immediately to the obscurity from which they were surprisingly lifted. And several indisputable greats have been ignored. Henry James, Ibsen, most bafflingly Nabokov, one of his century's greatest writers in two different languages. So what about this year when two prizes were awarded to Peter Hankey, who with typical Nobel Elan is an apologist for Slobodan Milosevic, and Olga Takarchuk, We'll get to them. Plus last night, when we're recording this, the Booker Prize was awarded to two people, to Margaret Atwood and Bernadine Evaristo. What do we make of that? We've got a piece in the paper by Alan Taylor about his experience of giving the booker to James Kelman twenty five years ago, for which the author was more or less vilified. So let's consider the true value of literary prizes with Toby Lichtig and the Doctor Michael Keynes, who are alongside us now. Hello. Hello. Shall we start on the booker? Because it's the freshest in our minds. You were there, Toby? Yeah, the no, prize was, giving, never turning down a free drink or food. I little, noticed several free drinks and well quite d- well free d- food. What yeah. did you make of it? Explain what happened. Explain how it
4: felt in the room. Um, well, there was Peter Florence, chair of judges. He stood up and he gave his sort of pre speech, and then there was a dramatic pause, and I think he was milking it a bit before he told us there were going to be two winners. And there, there wasn't quite a, an awed silence, but there was a you know a little bit of visible ruffling. And did he explain why? Um, he basically said that it was because they were unable to come to consensus. So he said they tried voting and that didn't work. Um, and they. And yet there and were talked. five of them, so well, yes, theoretically voting must have wasn't worked quite, at one yes, level. I wasn't quite didn't quite buy that myself either. It's, it's, it's a, it is a very fair point, Stig. Um, ideally, you've sort of, you come to some sort of semi-unanimous verdict with these things, and I think it sounds like they were, were were extremely split. However, I think you've pointed out the flaw in that argument, and I think it was a very strange and quite regrettable decision to split it especially as the book of rules actually state you're not allowed to um so they were sort of joyously Cause they changed, they? because they changed weren't they so, it so, it so there have been two previous Booker prizes that, that have been split but back in those days there was one in the early 70s and one in the early 90s there weren't any rules saying you weren't supposed to this time apparently the gabby Woods, who's in charge of the whole sort of prize itself she's the chair um she said please come to a decision i mean anyone who's ever judged a prize will know that one of the first things we're told is please don't split the winners because it diminishes the the, the prize itself and it it makes yeah I think it kind of makes a a bit of a mockery of the whole thing but anyway they decided to flout this convention I think sort of seem to quite enjoy doing it I just don't really see the point of it and I think I think it's a great shame particularly for Bernadine Evaristo who should have just been given the prize she's a fantastic novelist it's a really good book well the problem is we
2: can't know can we because we're going to either you think oh they wanted to give it to Atwood but were worried about giving it to so famous a writer so they threw a bone to Bernadine Evaristo or they wanted to give it to Bernadine Evaristo but they thought Margaret Atwood might come to the the prize and we need to reward her for being a literary giant so they threw a bone to Margaret Atwood and either one of those things is is
4: awful don't throw a bone just (laughs) just just make a a decision
2: I mean it is literally that you had one job thing isn't it
4: absolutely and And there's, there's something reasonable arbitrary about the whole process of giving prizes. But so it's, it's kind of embrace that and just go through the you know go through the process and just exactly do what you're supposed to do.
5: I completely agree with that. If you're going to play this ridiculous game at all, then maybe you should play by the rules. But the fun thing that's emerged from this, which I didn't know is that a few years ago Peter Florence was on another panel that split a prize. So he has 4 <gasps> He's got four he What was the panel? Form. He was on the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize yeah, for humor. comic writing. Yeah. And that time there were four members of the jury or whatever you call it, you know, which sounds a bit silly anyway. And they just in the end said, oh, let's have two winners. And they both got a pig to be named after, yeah. them an old Gloucester pig.
2: Well, you're cynical about prizes generally,
5: aren't you? I, I actually use them personally my, as responsible literary journalists or there's probably a better term, ruder term, um, but we have to pay some, some attention, don't we? But as editors, it gets very boring reading reviews where every every other author is a prize-winning author. You just cut that out, it gets really tedious. It doesn't mean anything in critical terms, except that somewhere along the line, they've picked up a little bit of prestige, but that's part of the job nowadays. So it's as common as saying, I can hold a pen. The other thing about it is, I personally, as a reader, it does me a great service, because I think there's six books I don't have to read this year. Someone at a party will say to me, oh, have you read The New Margaret Atwood? I'll say, oh, isn't it marvellous? And I can leave that out and it will be the absolute <laughs> consensus, bog standard, boring collection of the worst collection of novels you could ever want at the front of the shop. And I don't want to read that. I will read that later when the fuss has, has died like down that, about I
2: guess it. There's an argument, though, that if you talk to some booksellers, they would say the opposite. For people who don't dip their toe in literary waters very often and maybe will only read four to six literary in inverted commas. I'm not saying that actually has a meaning, but, you know, I mean, we all kind of understand vaguely what I mean. And it guides them towards... You know, The Burning
4: of the Everest, though, is an interesting and good book. I do totally agree with Michael, but I have a, however, to add to that, which is that last year's winner, Anna Burns, for Milkman. I think it showed the book a prize at its best. It was a book that I happen to think was completely excellent. It, it wasn't selling very many copies, as it you know, it was never likely to do before. It, it won the prize. It, suddenly, it's been selling sort of two, three, four hundred thousand copies, I think, now. It's totally changed her life. She gave a very moving speech yeah, about, that, um, about how, you know, it's changed her life financially and just in terms she of was, her... She was on the breadline, wasn't she? OK. Yeah, I think she she was sort of heavily in debt and living um, with friends, and she actually gave a very moving speech as well about how it brought her family together. I think she hadn't been in touch with siblings for a very long time, and suddenly this new fame. Anyway, that was the background, and you think, well, is not in quite an analogous situation. I think she's been more fated throughout her career and sold slightly better than Anna Burns did, but this prize could or could have changed her life in the same way. Instead, we're sitting around discussing the controversy rather than discuss, discussing her very good book. We haven't even mentioned the title, Girl, Woman, Other. You know, yep. This is the book that has won the book. But no one's actually I, and let's be honest, there. there's a
2: sneaking suspicion this is what the judges wanted. <laughs> it's like referees at a football match. If you're talking about the referees, they're having, they've had a terrible game. You, know, you, you don't go to a match to watch the referees. You go to watch the football and the referees make it happen. And it seems to me exactly the case with judges. There's a smugness. There's a kind of relentless smugness that they've flouted the laws, that they've broken the rules. They had to get, you know, another member of the literary establishment to come in and tell them what the rules are, and they still ignored it.
4: It just looks like it's relishing all of this stuff. I completely agree. I think it's yeah. I think there was an arrogance to doing that.
3: I suppose it also depends on what they think, they being the judges and and the chair, what they think their job was. A bit of what you were saying before, whether they think it is their job to bring people to books and these prizes aren't for us at all. And what they're saying is we think both of these books are important as entry points or as books that tell us something about the world that we're living in now. And in that sense, I'm trying to be generous here because I I think what's happened at the Booker this year represents both the best and worst about prize culture in that effectively you've ended up giving a prize to someone who, who doesn't need the prize and as you were saying toby it's not going to change margaret atwood's life it's not going to make it possible for her to write books that she wouldn't otherwise be able to write bernardine is, is Everisto is is a slightly different proposition maybe but if it hadn't been split it could have been even stronger we talk a lot about prizes Being given where they matter, and and in small presses, for example, that could make all the difference. It can make the difference between being able to print 600 copies of a book and being able to print a couple of thousand copies of a book. That's when they matter.
5: That brings in something that was published in the TLS, I think, in the year that the book has started. uh, A French um, sociologist who, who made a distinction, it may be too clear cut, but I think it's quite useful to think about it in a schematic way that there was a classical version of a literary prize, which is a kind of working bursary and that's close to what we've got in the case of, of Anna Burns, of something that does mm. change somebody's life. But we've got to ask whether that if, whether that is what the prize is for. Mm. The other side of um, the thing that he thought was happening, that the Goncourt was doing and a few of the French prizes, and what the Booker was going to do, was create what he called an artificial bestseller. And there's this lovely tub-thumping line in it, which I I have to write down because I really enjoy it a public which buys books under these conditions is not an adult one publicity replaces judgment now it's what that comes back to what I think you were saying that okay there will be people who won't pick up many they don't you know read a book every week or something that's the one they'll go for they might like milkman they might be it might be an adventure they haven't read that kind of thing before etc and so it has done someone a service but I, I like that kind of tub thumping take that this this horrific prize provokes and that's all part of the, of the of the kind of carnival isn't it even people objecting to it
3: and it narrows the reading pool in a sense mm, as well yeah, because completely. if you say oh well i'm only going to read nine novels this year or however many then and and your your approach to it is to say oh well everyone's been talking about that one that one won that prize that one won the other prize and there are so many prizes that very quickly you'll have filled up your allocated nine slots that's your shelf taken and taken also, up and that's you done and also
2: yeah. we live in a world where this is frightfully exciting for people who find literary prizes frightfully exciting but that's not very many people this is not the real world and that's why the self-importance of it niggles at me a little bit because we live in a world where the most important thing that sells a book is word of mouth recommendation it's amazon reviews it's goodread reviews it's not actually literary criticism and it's not actually a prize-giving culture beyond i think the big, maybe, and maybe this is the one exception to that. But the general thing that will really sell a book is loads of people liking it and telling their friends, and that possibly now more than ever, because people can congregate and share information about their feelings around a book in a way that perhaps 20 years ago everything was more monolithic. There were some reviews, and there were some prizes, and absent kind of gathering together in a library, that was it. And maybe this is feels silly because it's a sort of anachronism.
4: It is, but I think we're all to blame, you know, including us sitting here for for concentrating so much on, for example, the Booker, and we'll come to the Nobel in, in a bit as well. Because my line tends to be almost conversely, I'm happy for there to be as many prizes as possible to sort of dilute the hegemony of one particular prize. I think if we're going to have prizes, let's let's have them far, you know, let's cast the net out far and wide, and not just focus on, for example, the Booker, because it is just you know a bunch of people sitting around in a it's room it? it's completely arbitrary but
2: to, to your part I think because I'm chairing a prize so I'm I, I'm to blame for all of this you know as much as anyone else the Bailey Gifford which is the non-fiction Just
3: for the record there was a tut there from Michael yeah. Yeah, Michael, so. hard to <laughs> Michael, the Michael
2: has been tutting at me since I, I agreed to do it uh, but anyway, and it's, the, it's a non fiction book because it's very, very similar. And you raise an interesting point that you're then left with no one can truly agree on what a prize is for. Uh, and in the case of non fiction books, are you rewarding importance and cultural relevance, or are you rewarding brilliance of writing? Are you rewarding someone who you feel deserves the attention who's otherwise escaped it versus someone who's had a tremendous career and deserves a laurel? And every individual person will have a have a spectrum on which they place importance and they'll say, well, actually writing is the most important, but I'd like it to be a bit important or importance is the most important. I'd like it to have a bit of good writing. And what you end up with in the end is very personal decisions that are meaningful for a
5: second and then immediately cease to be meaningful. It it strikes me. Um, but, I think that's but, one reason why what Toby was describing does happen, is that prizes breed prizes. Prize winners sometimes take the prize money and set up another prize with it, because it's their own individual taste that suddenly they're able to foist on somebody else. Is anyone else. being hurt by that, Michael? Because if, if in the end
2: books are being spread, like I said, the agency for spreading books is probably more there than it's ever been before, but this is another way of doing it. is though. I mean, I think Margaret Atwood is such an exceptional figure in all of this, which is why it makes the prize seem to me ridiculous... Because she's so sui generous, isn't it? She's you know she sells this book will be the big her book will be the biggest selling book of the year. Is she being rewarded for having written a book forty years ago that was really really good for which this is a sequel that's quite good and for having a TV series
4: which she didn't actually have that much to do with yeah. anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and, 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 and generous of us to say it, but by yeah. splitting the prize we're being compelled to say it because they haven't said we've gone for Atwood for the following five reasons and this book, beyond all other books, is the best book in our arbitrary opinion. I'd have rather
4: they did that. I didn't particularly want Atwood to win at all, but I'd much rather they'd have just put... Yeah, exactly. This is a semi
2: arbitrary opinion, but we gathered together and we read the books and ultimately, the best book, by whatever criteria we could scrabble together, was this one.
5: You have to live with that, don't you? I I don't think... It's a good question about does it really hurt anyone? I think one possible answer is more a question of who it helps. Book booksellers, it's obviously hugely helpful to have predictability. And that's one thing the booker supplies is the moment that announcement is made, off, you know, down to the printers they go and it's in the shops so the next day, hundreds of copies with that, you know, magical badge on yeah. it. And obviously, it helps as we we're saying people who want that choice made for them.
2: Yeah, but that's good, isn't it? No in a sense, no one is being hurt because I don't know. I think what about the people who aren't on the-
3: It does also hurt the people for the following year's submissions, doesn't it? Because oh, you completely. Yeah. If your publishing house wins an award, you're then given.
5: Yeah, that's in the case, definitely in the case of the book as part of its conservatism is if, you, if you've if you got a track record of any sort in the last five years that helps you then be able to make more, uh, more submissions, submissions for the next year which is another reason I think to be a bit suspect about it. You get something like Milkman which I really enjoyed, I really think it's a great book and I think the figure they were putting out today is the week after it won an 880%
3: <laughs> jump in sales occurred. <laughs> well,
5: 10,000 well, that's 10,000 copies what I mean by that after. kind of predictability because they could give that kind of figure any year. If they just gave the award to Atwood this year, maybe the figure would be, yeah, okay, a lot smaller, but similar effect. We know what's coming. And
2: if you look also, then there's this, the judgment of history because, you know, we've got this piece by Alan Taylor about James Kelman, which was a book for which the judges were vilified for giving how late it was, how late, because it was a bit sweary. It was There was a snobbish reaction to it because it was a bit based on ordinary folk from Scotland. There is an argument, I've read the book, that it's not particularly enjoyable book, so it feels like an odd odd choice. But how many of the Booker Prize winners will really also win in the great competition of history? How many in 50 years time, 100 years time, of these books that get all of this puffery will be judged by posterity to be great?
4: Well, well, interestingly, so for example, the last time it was split was in 92, and Michael Ondaatje's book, The English Patient, was split with a Barry Unsworth novel. Now, last year, for the Booker of Bookers, the 50-year anniversary, Ondaatje's book was voted the top one there it didn't even win its own year <laughs> and that just shows how how these things you know shifting tastes shifting ideas yeah. the, the arbitrary and the i thing. think you make a case that the
2: great the last great book a book in my opinion was disgrace by kurt sear there may be one or two others but
4: i think there have been there have been
2: good ones
5: since then haven't there you're about to say Milton again.
4: I'd put Milton yeah. there. I, I, I really like the line of beauty. That's post-disgrace, mm. yeah. yeah. isn't it? All right.
2: We better talk about the Nobel, which is, I think, more ridiculous than the Booker, yes. because it's... Ins- I mean, people... I think I didn't know until we ran that piece last year about the Academy, how it works. It's so bizarre that it's just because so Nobel... He read a premature obituary of himself in the French newspaper which said what a merchant of death he was because he had pat- patents on gelignite uh, and dynamite. So he was an arms arms dealer. And he read this premature obituary and thought, oh God, I don't want Nobel to go down in history as the man who invented dynamite or patented dynamite. So he just creates these things, gives some money to the Swedish Academy because that's where he was from. It's
3: pure Christmas Carol.
2: Yeah, yeah it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. And yet... And then the people who now make these awards are Swedish academics and figures who are either, you either would trust their judgment or wouldn't, but they're not particularly exceptional people. They have no geographical spread. And then every year, against the ridiculous criteria of sort of ideals in literature, which doesn't even mean anything in English, they seemingly randomly pick a shortlist of five and then a figure of one.
4: Or and two this year. Or two this year, because they, <laughs> well, they, they, they had, two had two such years. a terrible
2: sex scandal last year that they had to not do it at all.
4: By dint of it, it having been around for so long, I think it's generated its own kind of prestige. And, and th- a million quid. And a million quid, that helps as well. And I think the other prizes, the Peace Prize, the Economics Prize, they, they almost kind of bounce off each other giving, giving yeah. each other this and sort the of... and the fact
3: it. that it sounds a bit like Noble. And
4: it sounds a bit like Noble. <laughs> 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 I think, honestly, I think that's a, a Booker prize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Booker
5: uh, oh prize. Nobel, <laughs> gosh, we've got <laughs> that. I think it picks up on the point you were, you were just making me talking about the Booker, that the Nobel, the, the original criteria about work of an ideal tendency and um, a lifetime's work are, are sort of baking in a kind of conservatism and the opportunity for wrong-headedness. So that term, ideal was interpreted immediately as basically meaning reactionary. That's why Tolstoy couldn't win. It's why Strindberg couldn't win. And to their credit, there were writers, even at the beginning, said, I don't want to win, including Tolstoy, twice. He said, in fact, the second time when he found out he was in the running, he said, could you please, said to a friend in Sweden, please make sure I'm not why didn't he want I to? Because he, 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 didn't, he didn't think it was worth it. Well, the first time he said something about I don't know what I'd do with the money which is a slightly <laughs> weird thing to say but I wonder whether also he was anticipating something that Sartre said when, although he is officially a winner he said I don't want to be part of this institution and then he actually sneakily asked about the money later I think yeah. but you know I, uh, that's a really valid point I think the Nobel owns you you're a Booker Prize winner or a Nobel yeah. Prize winner you're a Goncal winner whatever but it the is Nobel they, Pri- they, they get more from you than you get from them If you run down the list, it is an extraordinary combination
2: of the very, very big and important who you think in Europe generally. It's incredibly Eurocentric with weird excursions for a year that they then seem to resolve from and never go back on. The very great and the very obscure. And it's almost impossible to work out how there's a prize that could go to Beckett but not
5: Nabokov it's funny that For when example. people look back at these lists or, or you know any kind of you know list of, of prizes from the past you note the obscurity you think oh weren't they silly yeah. <laughs> they gave a prize to Edward so and so we've never heard of instead of T.S. Eliot in the Year of the Wasteland and that does seem silly but then I, I think that brings up something interesting about Nobel and the Booker perhaps especially in Nobel which is that there are all these controversies year in, year out. There'll be something of some sort. Bob Dylan, we'd be talking about Bob Dylan if it was a couple of years ago. If it was somebody politically controversial, not just Peter Hanker, but Olga and Tokarczuk as well. Um, books of um, Jacob was massively controversial in Poland, of course, um, about four or five years ago. The implication is these are the wrong winners. There's a better choice. I think the actual problem is that the choice has to be made at all. And that's why you end up with that ridiculous list because you go, okay, I've yeah, got Kipling. And stands the test of time in some strength. It's actually, you know, it's starting to wane now. Yeah. But 20, 30 years ago, people said, yeah, yeah Kipling, a great. Sully Prudhomme, first winner, not a great. No. But this because it's, it's, it might as well be arbitrary. You might as well throw a stone.
2: Well, and, and, and because we can't judge it, we don't know. These are sort of kind of faceless people doing it against faceless criteria. Again, particularly the academy. I think if you asked 100 people in the street who even like books and said, how do you think they're award the nobel prize in literature i mean no one even knows the name of it because in english it's either in literature or for literature. we had a row at it's eight o'clock it. last night about in but our style guide says for. Uh, <laughs> it does feel and it's been damaged now so do should we care about it do you I mean or maybe we don't i mean maybe just because we
4: work in where we work it's, it's difficult when you work in the media, isn't it? Because ideally we'd ignore it, but then if we're ignoring it and, and everyone else is talking about it, then we're not part of the conversation. I'm doing scare quotes there; <laughs> no, no, no one can see that. But it's but it's true. It's, it's, it's to what, it, and that, that's why my line is, is is try to engage with lots of different prizes as well, and then you can sort of dilute the hegemony. But it is it's it's very strange. I, I didn't, in fact, until our colleague Ros Danine wrote an excellent piece for. Um, the website a couple of years ago about the judging process, I didn't really even know how it worked. The no. way things get whittled down and you've got a short list, or a long list of 15 and then a short list of five. And, and then you it, don't know for 50 years who was on the exactly shortlist. list. You released. So actually, the, Ros mentioned it in her piece, in 1966, you had, the short list was Nabok- Nabokov, Auden, Beckett, Graham Greene, S.Y. Anyon, the Israeli um, writer, and Nelly Sachs. And that was given jointly that year to Nelly Sachs and S.Y. Anyon, not the others, interestingly. Yeah, and that, yeah, there we go.
2: <laughs> uh, should we play a brief game of the Nobel Prize was in this room? We're a bunch of faceless, arbitrary people, <laughs> so we could have a go. Who would we give it to? Anyone have any people? They would- Chuck
4: a stone, as Michael says.
2: Yeah. Got anyone you particularly...
4: I, there's, there's something that amuses me about the Nobel Prize which is it, sort of longevity often pays off so you might have an author who hasn't written anything for 20 it was a bit like Dylan you know, Dylan did yeah. all his excellent stuff Pinchin. in the 60s and 70s Pynchon I said oh god Mil- Milan Kundera he's still alive he hasn't written anything for 20 years he's 90 I wouldn't particularly want it to go to him <laughs> I was wondering about Carol <laughs> Churchill oh, interesting. Interesting. could be an interesting choice yeah. Anyway, mm. Andy Prox. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a big
2: fan of yeah, hers. Yeah, yeah. Michael, anyone? You, you're, you're, you're even playing fantasy, no I,
5: I would have resigned years ago. I think what I'd do is maybe I'd give it to someone like, um, oh, one of my old friends, like Salman Rushdie, and say, but you have to pay for it. And then we bill him the <laughs> million, and that would go to charity. It would
2: cost a million to do
5: it. Yeah. Yeah. I
3: think that's the way to end it. I have nothing to add. Fine. I have no interest. <laughs> no interest. All. All I have no minutes. interest in, in giving minutes. this prize <laughs> to anyone. Fine. Talking about it is okay. All of the reasons that we have okay. have, have gone through. But talking it. about it's fine. Talking about it is fine. That's
5: good.
1: <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
3: Every year for the past 25 years or so, Dr David Knott has taken a few months off from his job as a consultant general and vascular surgeon for the British National Health Service to travel to the sites of some of the most gruelling humanitarian crises to lend a hand and save lives. A pronounced sense of altruism, coupled with something more complicated, a kind of addiction, as he terms it, to extreme circumstances, has taken him to Kabul, Sierra Leone, Yemen, Darfur, Basra, Haiti, Libya and Gaza, his book, War Doctor, Surgery on the Frontline, gathers his abundant experiences and makes for inspiring, if challenging, reading. Alexander van Tulukin himself a doctor with a background in conflict medicine, has reviewed the collection and joins us now to tell us more. Welcome, hello.
6: It is lovely to be here.
3: Um, it's lovely to have you. Oh um, nice. Politeness. I know, if I'm a long time listener, first time <laughs> yeah. visitor. Yeah. Yeah.
6: You've
2: been on this before, haven't you?
6: Yeah, but only phoning in. Oh, so so this, the last this is the were, first time I've been in a You were in, in a
3: car at the side of a motorway. What were you doing
2: about last
6: time, Do you remember? Uh, yes, uh, it was the very terrible book by Paul Collier about um, you know how to keep refugees in Ooh, concentration yeah. camps yeah. for less money. So it's quite a different,
3: um, quite a different tack that we're coming at t- with today. This is different. a
6: much warmer, more inspiring read, yeah, for sure. Is it ad- is it admirable? Is this an admirable enterprise? I think the book kind of poses some quite big questions about humanitarianism. There is a whole sort of strand of critique that just says this lowers the cost of war. And Fl- Florence Nightingale was the first person to really trash humanitarian endeavours. The Red Cross gets invented in the middle of the, you know, the Geneva Conventions kind of come along the first iteration in the middle of the 19th century. Battle of, of Solferino. Uh, uh, yeah, Exactly, exactly. So Henri Dunant is going to just try and get a licence to sell some corn from the Pope. And so he, he witnesses the Battle of Solferino and he sees the nuns tending the wounded soldiers no matter which side they're on and he is inspired. So I mean and it's an origin story, right? It's an origin myth. I mean I, I don't imagine that he it, it, you could draw an exact line between this and the creation. But anyway, he does start the Red Cross. And immediately there is a critique which has lasted to this day saying if you provide care to people they fight harder and they fight longer and you could see that with data in Bosnia that if there was a doctors without borders surgical hospital nearby the Bosnians were more likely to go and fight and more likely to get injured and so we can't buy that argument can we or can we so statistically that's it's hard to get the data but statistically that seemed to be true that if you put a hospital there more people are more willing to risk a bullet in the stomach and you see that very often I mean I I worked in Darfur in 2005 and in 2011 And you could see that this humanitarian operation had caused vast problems. Uh, Humanitarian dollars inflate local wages. They distort the local economy in in more than just uh, real estate prices and the price of food. That you will drain the local Ministry of Health. You'll drain the local school of um, anyone that can speak English. Just have them as your driver. So you'll take the English teacher uh, from from the local school and employ them as a driver or a translator. So the aid, aid is not without its difficulties. And I think David Knott's book really does a beautiful job of nailing down the specifics of saving a life. Is he conscious of that,
2: the dilemma of... Because there's an argument that we talk about white saviours these days, the saviour complex, and at one level this narrative, which would be still very appealing at, at one level, he goes in, he puts himself in harm's way, he doesn't have to.
6: He sort of skirts around that critique in a really interesting way. The first is that he does stuff that really nobody else was doing. There were no other Western surgeons in Aleppo at the time he was there. And ordinarily, it's less dangerous for me than it is for the local doctor from Darfur. If I'm working in the field hospital, I go home every night. We've got security guards, all sorts. I'm not caught up in the difficulty and I can leave. But for David Knott, he was probably in more danger than his Syrian colleagues. So he gets to speak with a different voice to you know, there's a whole genre of kind of humanitarian adventure literature and most of it's rubbish because most of it's, it's war stories, it's not thoughtful it's not a critique of the endeavour, it's just it's just larks And this avoids that because he can speak with a voice that really no one else can speak with. And at least some of the trauma that he's articulating is his own in a legitimate way. Whereas, you know, the sort of, oh, so traumatic working in Darfur, well, not for me compared to any of the local people.
3: And how does he explain how he got started? How does he explain his motivation? I mean, was there... An epiphanic moment, when did it come?
6: Yes, so interestingly there is. Uh, He talks about the Killing Fields, and he goes to watch the Killing Fields um, in the movie theatre with his dad, and he realises that he wants to help people affected by these kinds of crisis. But he is very clear in the book that for him it's an adventure, and he is an adrenaline junkie. And there's this sort of extraordinary parallel story running in the book, which is that he is also not just an enthusiastic amateur pilot but at one point is an nhs doctor with a private practice also doing humanitarian surgery busy life and is a professional part-time commercial airline pilot and you can't so i haven't included that in the review because you can't you can't sort of insert it into like the the central story and by the
3: way yeah it's like also
6: just a weird little detail (laughs) He's appealing, I think, because that would sound so obnoxious as a kind of set of achievements, as a kind of incredible life, except that he describes over and over and over again how close he comes to crashing these planes because he's tired or he just isn't a very good pilot. He almost kills all his friends in a helicopter crash because he hasn't planned it properly. And so part of the book's appeal is... A huge amount of it is just that he has seen things that no one else has seen or that no one one else from the West has seen. There's a sort of charming bit where he, he describes fishing a detonator out of someone from their sort of body cavity during surgery and kind of making a note that that's a dangerous bit of humanitarian surgery. And then later on, someone's on the operating theatre and, and a some bit of munitions or detonator or something falls out of their pocket. And he's really annoyed at himself. And he says, oh, you know, I should have learned, you know, I should remember to check for... Explosives in or on the patient.
3: It's like when you're putting your jeans in the washing and you have to check for receipts.
6: It's it literally exactly <laughs> the, I mean, now with the Waterproof.
3: There's a lot at stake. The
6: Waterproof £5 note has slightly solved that problem, <laughs> it's but it's less than um, the horror. You have lived that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's, there's a yeah. book in. There. We had yeah. a piece
2: in the, in the paper a while ago which is about a, sur- a surgeon's memoirs, because surgeon memoirs are kind of common as well.
6: Yes. And
2: in it, the surgeon was kind of talking about the sort of sociopathic nature of Henry surgeons. Boss.
6: Might well have, it been. Been.
2: yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that your experience? Is, is that a thing? Is there a personality trait? Because I remember at university there was always the people who were training to be doctors, and there was a kind of a there was that person's going to be a surgeon, and it was kind of a shorthand for saying he was a bit full of it. Often men, he was a bit full of himself. I mean, and what you're saying is someone who says I'm going to be a professional pilot, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to do mm. this. Is there a certain amount of ego attached to surgery generally? Do you feel
6: I don't? Interestingly, my, my twin brother was his um, one of his junior doctors and liked him and said that he's a very likable person, one personal of David guy. Knotts. One of David Knotts. Uh, my sense is he, he doesn't. You, you need a certain boldness to cut into anyone. I, I've done about two appendicectomies and I found that that was. It always struck me as mad to take a knife to another human. I don't have that personality trait, but I, and I recognise the sort of that description of the surgeon as psychopath. That kind of weird. Mixture. I think the sense you get from David Knott is that he's running away from something pretty big. I think his, he, he describes a childhood that was sort of idyllic for the first few years, growing up in Wales with his grandparents, and then... He moves to England with his mum and dad and things are a lot rougher and more difficult and he sort of experiences racism for the first time. He is part Asian and Welsh and I think he probably got a, a mixture of the two kinds of prejudice in England. But he has an unhappy childhood and I think he buries himself in these extraordinarily... Distracting tasks in order to not have to face the kind of realities of life. That that's my interpretation on it, which makes him appealing at least to me.
3: Well, and certainly for um, a substantial part of his career, he was single. Didn't have his parents. I think had both both died. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any children. And then towards the end of the book, that changes.
6: He does get a girlfriend and And two children the the, the, the book is dedicated to them so
3: how does that change the equation for him
6: i think it's got a very nice he falls in love and he keeps doing the surgery and he describes how these humanitarian missions are kind of destroying his life and how hard it is to hold a relationship together but he at at the same time is realizing that he he is pretty strung out and he's got a couple of surgeries of post-traumatic symptoms that are quite significant, sitting down with the Queen to try and tell her about Aleppo and he can't talk about it and she does this rather sweet thing of saying let's just feed the corgis in silence and they feed the dogs and she says that's so much better than talking. It's a sort of weird stiff upper lip kind of uptight Englishness that actually seems quite gentle and human in the the book and there's another story where he comes out of a meeting and he's been weeping uncontrollably for hours and I think at the same time as that he realises that he can do more good. He is so prominent. He's been on Desert Island Discs. He's got, I think he got an OBE. He sort of has this sense that he's more and more prominent. He's able to go on the news and talk about Syria in a way that really very, very few other people could. Because he could see a thing in Syria that no one else could see, in that he could see the way that the injuries were affecting people. And so only a surgeon could put together that the pregnant women were being targeted by snipers, not to kill them, but to injure them and injure their babies, that people were being targeted by snipers to, to wound them and maim them. And really, you can only kind of put together that picture if you see where the bullet goes in. Um, which is
2: interesting and horrific in the sense that we're just talking in a week in which Syria yet again yeah. has has you know faced appalling violence the Kurds, Thanks to some of the policy making or lack of policy making, str- lack of strate- strategic thinking of Donald Trump, and it w- makes me wonder how in America, for example, well, it's
6: strategic thinking. If you own a hotel chain in Turkey, isn't it? Is that yeah? Well, it, that's about but as strategic yeah, 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 as, yeah, okay. as it
2: possibly gets. But I wonder whether books like this can they make a difference? Because to America, for example, and I wonder how if, what if this book sells in America. All of these things are very faceless debates, aren't they? I think Trump can can when he goes around the country this year and next year. Mm. campaigning he'll say my job is to get out of all foreign wars foreign wars by definition yeah. are bad hillary clinton wanted them she's a hawk yeah. my predecessors wanted them obama half did them half didn't do them my Maya... and it doesn't matter that people won't know really the relationship between turkey and the kurds they won't know about the problem of assad versus the problem of is mm. and they're very complicated alliances that, that that work in that area do you think there's any role for books like this to sort of put a put a human face and body to, to those type of, of issues?
6: Well, I, I would say that is the whole... We started with the, the critique of humanitarian aid, this kind of lowering the cost of war, lowering the price of violence. I think the defence of aid is that people go in and bear witness to what's happening. And that seems to me to be the value of the whole project. So, yeah, I think that is... The book, in, in a way, is the one totally defendable valuable product of aid he's he's bearing witness and that's it, this is not a brilliantly written book it's it's well enough written that it kind of romps along it's not yeah it's he's fine, a likable he's a likable character you're interested in what happens he's got a story that no one else can tell it, 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 it's for sure i i'd recommend it um but it's not a great piece of writing but um but no one else could have written it and so his job is to be credible and to tell stories that the people in Syria can't tell. All the debate about white saviourism, which voice are you speaking with, all these things, I think he skirts around it because of, because of what he's... And that's probably, in some
2: ways, saying. there's nothing worse than having a theoretical debate when there are practical problems. Yeah.
6: Well, I, so I would, I would say the book, can it do good in a concrete sense? No, but if you could, if I gave you a magic button and said make it better in Syria, what, what would you do? Would you kill Assad? Would you start assassinating? You know, how would you make it all better?
3: Well, so it all hinges on on the same sort of debate as war photography does in terms of, is it well, is it is it, yeah, and is it, how do you bear witness, do you switch from bearing witness into sort of pushing and campaigning and steering, and presumably now he's at that, he's on that kind of threshold.
6: But probably you can only, I mean, the thing I, I kind of loved about the book from a theoretical point of view is that it makes the point that in order to do, to deal with a big picture problem, you need to have incredibly granular knowledge of the situation. You need to understand how to mend the track of a bullet through a human. And it's all very well tinkering around the edges with sanctions or border controls or whatever else you want to do. But I think the value of that insight in understanding the fundamental nature of the problem is, is pretty big.
2: Plus also, you make the point at the end, I think, that a war photographer who observes can make a difference. Mm. But a, a war doctor who both observes and gets his hands dirty, Mm. saves a life. And a life saved, in the scheme of things, is vastly important. And you quote, I think, at the end of the Quran. which
6: I quote him, quoting the Quran, whoever saves a life, it shall be as though he had saved the lives of all mankind.
2: I can kind of buy that in the sense that not only are you bearing witness, which is very important, but even if just one family gets someone back who otherwise would have died in a sort of horrible pool of their blood with shrapnel inside them, In and of itself, that's a a plus thing to put a place in your account, isn't it?
6: I think so, and probably the best sort of rival, maybe not rival, but kind of companion book to this. David Reif, Susan Sontag's son, um, wrote a book called A Bed for the Night, and he kind of poses that exact question and says, look, it won't... He quotes a Brecht poem about a guy raising money for the homeless, and he says, look, it won't change the world. It won't stop kind of conflicts between people, but for a night the snow will be kept off a few people's head. And that's the value of it and the limitation of it. And that, to me, is is what humanitarianism should be. This huge international kind of humanitarian industrial complex I'm sceptical of, but the value of going to a place and standing next to the people who are the targets of an abusive government and trying to see what's happening through their eyes and help them in some small way. That that feels to me intrinsically valuable. And I think he really demonstrates that the limits of it and the value of it at the same time.
7: We'll
2: have to leave it there, I think. Zaman uh, Salikhan, thank you very much indeed.
6: Thank you so much for having me.
3: David Gregg is the Artistic Director of the Royal Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh. His adaptation of Stanislav Lem's Solaris is currently showing at the Hammersmith Lyric Theatre in London, having already been in Edinburgh and Melbourne. Our arts editor Lucy Dallas sat down with him earlier this week, and in the clip you're about to hear, she's just asked him what drew him to retell this strange story of extraterrestrial understanding and misunderstanding.
7: Certainly the book is complex, but in a strange way I think it's much simpler, in the sense that... um, A person in in our story, we've made Chris a woman. We'll come back to that. But let's just say, so Chris arrives on a space station uh, orbiting the planet Solaris. The planet Solaris is covered in an ocean. There may be reason to believe that that ocean has consciousness, or maybe it doesn't. And I think that's quite key because um, one of the best chapters in the book is the whole beginning where Lem does this. To me, this is one of the surprising things, is that it's almost like um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy rather rather than what you might think of if you're thinking of Tarkovsky and great art Mm. house cinema. Lem has this whole chapter of all the theories of Solaris' ocean. And it's very, very funny. And one says, you know, that I love says, uh, the best theory I think we've come is that the ocean is like a giant cosmic yogi that has realised the vanity of all action and retreated into unbreakable silence. So... Around this space station, these people are trying to study this planet, trying to understand what it is, and they're orbiting this great vast ocean and looking at it and just trying to think, you know, is is it thinking? What is it doing? Mm. So they have reason to believe it's conscious, but that reason then becomes even more uh, profound when they start having what they call visitors, and the visitors are manifestations of people from their memory or objects and things from their memory, But, again, we might think of that as ghosts. So it's almost as simple as to say these people on a space station who are orbiting a planet that they think might or might not be conscious start being visited by people who completely resemble people who were in their lives, but... Cannot be, because those yes, people are cannot, dead. cannot be there. I mean, That's slightly the, 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 spoiler the alert, but if you're this far, <laughs> I'm sure you'll be fine. And uh, Chris arrives, not necessarily knowing why the space station is in turmoil, arrives in order. She's a psychologist. She's there to, uh, well, in our story, we've said she's there to bring people home, but it doesn't really matter. She arrives to investigate the trouble. And um, she discovers this strange setup, which is, is the planet conscious and is it sending, is it reading their brains? Is it reading their dreams, in fact, is again what Lamb says. That's why I always think it's, we were really careful about the science fiction in the play because um, one of the things the theatre is not very good at is sort of futurism. I sort of call it tinfoil Mm. theatre. The um, cinema is great for that, you know, and you can have people in cinema saying things like, Put on the fremulator and disturb. And then you can show the tremulator. Yes, quite exactly, and it looks to. great, and everybody buys yes. it. But in theatre, yeah, yeah. we just laugh. I mean, there's yeah. just no possibility of doing it because
8: the fremulator is made of tin foil. Because it's made of tin foil, and, and, and yeah. we know perfectly yeah,
7: yeah. well that it is because we're in a theatre. So, there's something for me where I, I wanted to strip away all of that sort of stuff and just let it be what it is. And the glorious thing is, I think that's what Stanislav Lem was doing as well. In this, there's very little language of that type, of, or that this. Mm. It's really about they're looking at this great orbiting ball, they think it might have consciousness, and it starts to send them their own memories back. And then they have to interact with their own memories, but their own memories are now autonomous beings and have their own opinions about what's going on. I mean, I guess, of course, I've now shown, by rambling on, how difficult it is to sum up. But strangely, it comes back to quite simple things. What if someone who you loved and lost... Was back in front of you and did not know that that's who they were, but that's who they were, and so you had to try to interact, like trying to interact with, with you, yes, with your own past and your own loss, which is again why I think the cruel miracles phrase is very helpful because mm. it, that would be a cruel miracle.
8: And it's also it's something to do with well, it has to do with all sorts of things, isn't it? But it's also to do with time because they are they have some memory of of who they were they have your memory yes they have, they have your what, memory of who they, they are. have what because, you think they are yeah but then from that point onwards they are they, they start are, to develop because yeah. it yeah. seemed to me so i'm jumping right no, in the no, middle of this so but it's but it's there's yeah there's so much to to talk about it seems to me that as well as many other things it's 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 kind of about ai i mean not not specifically about ai but it's about consciousness what is consciousness yes. what do you do when something created in this case not human created yeah begins to have a mind of its own.
7: Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, again, I, I, I think maybe I just go away from all the technical stuff. For me, it's like puts you into the position of your sort of God. So your yes. mind has created this creature. There's a, a bit in our piece where... So, again, okay, might as well, you know, essentially, for Chris is visited by... In, by, in the book, it's his former wife in our story it's her former lover and she has reason to believe that she has very sad memories of her former yes. love old yeah, they're reasons, not straightforward would, they're and not complicated happy It's memories. very, very sad. And there's a point in the story where he realises that mm-hmm. and he realises that he has been created from that and therefore he can never be happy because he has been created sad, that's who he is. And he says something like, you know, I'm trapped in this skin and I'm sad all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she says that's what being human is. Well, she doesn't quite say that line, but but it's It's effectively, she sort of says, that's, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, but that's how we are as well. <laughs> that's kind of, we're trapped it's in a bag and there's it. nothing yeah. much we can do about it. And so I've always loved that thing. I think Lem is very thoughtful about the idea of of creation and about, I think there's a lot of religion in it, so it's about God, mm. because they look at this great big ball of consciousness, which could be the most, it could be, uh, the biggest intelligence that has ever existed or it could be like a child and and yeah and then there's this lovely thing that I think starts to happen when you start thinking but what if what would be the difference if you sort of I mean and yes there's something really extraordinary about the that maybe the most intelligent thing we could do would be to have a child's consciousness or do you see what I mean? Yes, and yeah, the yeah. Lem's book is full of that. Every thought is a turn on itself and a philosophical twist. Um, and it's
8: it's also it's it seems to be very much in your play as well. It's in a way I mean it doesn't matter, of course it does matter. It doesn't matter whether it's a god or a yogi or there's one theory that it's the autistic ocean that yes, doesn't really know what it's yes. doing or it's a child. Or because it's deeply it's, malevolent and it could be absolutely Could also, absolutely, be, could also yeah, be deeply yeah. malevolent and saying, Get out of here. Yeah. This is what I can do to you. Yeah. But that's not the issue because there's nothing the humans can do about that. The the issue yeah. is how the humans yeah respond yes. to it and kind of what they what they do with yeah, it yeah. and actually i want to go straight to the yeah, gender thing yeah. um because you've done the book and certainly the first film the tarkovsky film they're very sort of classic especially classic 60s sf in that they're very blokish yeah. It's basically all blokes yeah. there's a couple of women drifting in and out yeah. with cups of coffee and then and then yeah. there is a lover figure and, yeah and also arguably the the ocean, the unknowable, emotional ball, and then there's a lot of men being rational. But it doesn't get them very far being rational but in yours i was thinking because we're used to to blind casting in theatre theatre has been completely in the vanguard of that but but i think here it's more significant than that isn't it do you want to tell us why so
7: so, well first of all we were thinking about this the idea came from matthew lutton the director who's a fantastic australian director uh who i i had his picnic at hanging rock at our theater Mm. he loves looking at film which i think is very interesting i think the new canon, in a way, in theatre is increasingly film. I just think it's interesting. I'm not sure it's... You know, I love traditional plays as well, but it was interesting. And uh, I I was fascinated by his take, and he said the next thing he would like to do is Solaris and would I like to do it with him.
8: So that came from him, because I was going to ask you why... Yeah. why you came to it.
7: Yeah, well well he started with that and I mean I could have said no, but what happened was I, he said read the book. So I read the book and I I knew there was a Tarkovsky film and I'd seen a few Tarkovsky uh films as a student. I mean, I say seen. They'd kind of drifted past my consciousness probably when I was stoned and I don't really remember very much <laughs> about them. But I kind of knew. I kept thinking, well, God, You know, what what's that going to be? It's going to be how, really long. How are we going to do you know? that? Yeah. But yeah. I read the book and immediately got this sort of different take. Then I went back to the film and uh, I remember. <laughs> I remember... Just so many men. I mean, I love the film. The film is glorious, and I would really recommend it to anybody. And I, you know, it's a delicious thing. You want to go back and savor it again and again because it's so beautiful and so moving. But it is so many men. And there's one bit where um, the the equivalent, I suppose, of NASA. You know, NASA headquarters is is all these like have forty or fifty men in, oh, in suits, the film. Yeah. yeah, and they're um and they're looking out and they're going, "What is it? What does it want? What what is it?" What? And I thought oh, God, it's a woman. This is all about This is all about men <laughs> not being able... What thing? is this unknowable thing? It really made me laugh. Cool. Um, but also it made me think, oh, God, this is going to be really difficult. So we were just thinking about it. And the first thing we thought is, well, not only are they all men, I mean, they're all white men, and in the theatre just now, that's not going to work. But also, not is it not going to work, this is in an alternative universe where people are called... Jabarian and Professor R.V. Yes. Chang or whatever it is. Doesn't so it didn't to seem to be any reason why. Yeah. Also, I think it was totally in the spirit of Lem that the astronauts would be a representative sample of the world. And I thought Lem absolutely, if he was writing it now, would have put women in it as astronauts because I don't think he's interested in... I don't think I think sexuality interests him and gender and men and all of that, but I don't think he was particularly making a point that you know. No, that Rowe, even
8: though it looks as though it might fall into that cliche, that's not necessarily what he. That's was not. Doing, I don't think he's more interesting and than that.
7: There was a few things that immediately made me know I could do the story before we got to the gender story. The first is that it kind of is a play because it's a single location in which ghosts arrive in a to disrupt a small number of people and Mm. their daily ongoing lives, which might as well be ibsen i mean i see what it's you mean sort of, is
8: it, even though it's set yeah. in a space station actually it could yeah, just it's, be it's a as, house it's essentially from, a single yeah. location drama yeah. so
7: that was immediately grabbed me and i thought oh okay that's not quite what i thought um but the other thing was uh that on lem's space station there is a library and they drink wine and uh in tarkovsky they smoke cigarettes all the time mm. on in space and and that's of course because this is space in the 1960s it's imagined future space where you're able just to swan around and smoke a fag and have a drink yeah. and take a book from the library as you as you ponder the the universe and so what i suddenly thought was if we do this but we set it in the future of the past so so on our space station also we have um old technology and we we um We've kind of gone back that way.
8: Yes, because you've got tapes, haven't you? Yeah, and you've got. Or is it videotapes? And... Video you've got. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
7: yeah. And um, we've tried to make it that everything was basically as you might imagine it if you were in a communist country in 1963. <laughs> <laughs> even the even the furniture has that sort of look. David Gregg talking to Lucy Dallas. You'll find the full interview as a bonus episode
2: in your podcast feed. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Zan Van Tullican, Lucy Dallas and David Gregg and Toby and Michael. Get a copy of the TLS while you can. It is an art special filled with Blake, Gogan, Rembrandt and more. Plus the question is again asked and answered. Why are there no great women artists? There are. Next week we have a journalism special. Nobody tell Donald Trump. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.